Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Hi, I'm Mark Brumley with Ignatius Press, and we're here today with Carl Olson, the editor of Catholic World Report, and we're doing a report on Catholic World Report. Hi, Carl. Thankfully, not an investigative report. Investigative uh, reporters you, are outside your door right now. <laughs> the uh, albino monks are at the door. As I like <laughs> to joke for all these years with the Da Vinci, the Da Vinci hoax uh, and Da Vinci Code stuff. Yeah, if I hear a knock on the door while we're talking, I know what's going on. We from time regular listeners know from time to time we touch base with you to find out what's going on with Catholic World Report. And of course, new listeners will not know anything about it. They will not know anything about you. They will not have caught your reference to the Da Vinci hoax. <laughs> but that's okay. We're, we welcome newcomers as well. Carl, let's talk a little bit about what's been going on in the church. We always um, have to be somewhat careful about not dating ourselves because people might listen to this or watch this you know, a year from now or, or whenever. Uh, so we don't want it to be too much caught up in what happened last week by the way what happened last week i'm not sure but anyway uh (laughs) but we are going to talk about catholic world report and catholic world report is a news magazine so what are some of the latest things you think we should uh, bring to people's attention well as you know mark uh, traditionally this time of the year in terms of just if we're going to talk about focus in like on the vatican and things that are going on with the pope of course it's usually a little bit quieter but uh, we have the trip. <laughs> Usually, we did have the recent trip of Pope Francis to Canada, which of course generated a lot of of interest, and there was a lot of focus, of course, on his comments regarding the you know schools there, the uh, different things that may or may not have happened with Indigenous people that were students in these schools, um, and and then of course, as usual, uh, and you know this is just uh descriptive i mean neither positive or negative on the way back on the airplane pope francis made further remarks and you know it has become kind of a a regular thing that when he makes comments returning from trips yes he will inevitably say two or three things that you know create some buzz and and generate some uh, fewer or, or whatever it would be. Um, in this case, he made remarks about genocide, and he also talked about possibility of retirement. Um, on the latter, you know, the thing about the retirement was interesting because he actually didn't bring it up. It, he was asked this question three times, two different reporters. One asked two questions about it, another asked a question, follow-up question. There seems to be a real interest. There is a real interest, and there has been for a while because of his now fairly well-documented health problems, a lot of right. speculation about whether he will continue um, or if he at some point does have a plan to possibly retire. And I think the way to sum up what he says, and I thought what he said about the possibility of retirement was very even killed. And I thought it was um, actually, you know, very interesting because he said that he, uh, it's, you know, it's a possibility. I, he, right. he left the door open, but he in no way said, yes, it's going to happen or implied strongly that it's going to happen. He did not do that. He just said that's a possibility. And I think right. that's totally fine and even wise for him to say it's out there. 
uh, Benedict, of course, retired. And I think one of the things that people are wondering about if, if say, Pope Francis decides to retire in August, and there's been speculation he might do something like that. I personally don't think he's going to, but well, then we'd have... We, we've got half a month to find out. <laughs> we have some time to find out. You know, we'd be in this really, really strange situation with two retired popes, Pope Emeritus, however you want to put it, uh, et cetera. Um, but I think... I think there's a little bit too much made out of this. And, and I think that to me, the, to put it kind of simplistically, because there's obviously a lot involved in it, that to remember that the papacy is an office, the Petrine office. Um, and, you know, that, that even if we had two former popes uh, and a new pope, that no, we don't have three popes, uh, et cetera. So I, I bring this up because I did an interview about it last week uh, with Drew Mariani on Relevant Radio. And I know it's something that's going to probably continue to be of interest as we approach the upcoming meeting, you know, in Rome later this month um, with yeah. with some cardinals. So I, I think that's been, you know, the Canadian trip and some of the things that came out of the interview, that's been, uh, we've had a number of pieces on Catholic World Report about that. Uh, and certainly that was worth uh you know, focusing on during that time and, and going forward. On the retirement business, I mean, I've seen this run lots of different directions, as I'm sure you have. On the one hand, you read a story where it will sort of downplay, oh, the Pope, yeah, well, it just, it's just kind of an abstract theor theoretical conversation. And then you'll read it, you'll see another article or a headline that will say, you know, the Pope's just about ready to re retire. He's going to step down, you know, that kind of thing. And of course, as you say, uh, what he actually says is in one sense not that controversial. Now, in another sense it is because until Benedict retired, popes didn't retire. You know, it had been 500 years or 600 years, whatever it had been since the previous pope retired. So it was not something that was part of ordinary discourse about the pope, certainly not from the pope. Um, and so, yeah, it was a big deal that Benedict retired. So now there's an expectation, well, if Benedict retired, Maybe this is going to become a more typical thing. And then, of course, you get into uh, the church politics issue. The pe there are people who want to see Francis retire because they don't like his papacy. And then there are other people who want to see Francis retire. Uh, and they may even be sort of ideologically sympathetic to his papacy, but they like the idea of popes retiring. They like the idea of sort of regularizing the papacy. You mentioned it as an office. Uh, some people think of it more in terms of a job. And when somebody reaches a certain age, that person retires. There's no big deal about that. So, so there's that kind of thing. And of course, then there's the media. Anything that's unusual or different, they want to see happen because it gives them something to report on and talk about. So there's a lot of dynamics in, involved with this papal conversation. Um, you mentioned something about uh, the Pope's health, and there is a lot of speculation of it, about that. I don't know about you, but I, I see a similar kind of conflicting messaging. You know, there'll be some talk about uh, the Pope doesn't go, didn't go here because he's had this illness or this condition, and then as soon as the talk reaches a certain level and people start drawing inferences about the Pope's resignation or possible passing away or something, then there's this issue, the tendency of the Vatican to try to downplay it. 
and that's natural enough. So have you been seeing that too with respect to the Pope's health? Well, what I saw in the when you read the, go back and read the interview on the plane returning to Rome from Canada, it was interesting how and I don't have it in front of me, but the the question was was basically I think I'd be very fair to the question here. It was couched in terms of, you know, if you're no longer able to travel as much as Pope, do you think you'll continue your papacy? Now, I understand the question, but I think it's it's kind of interesting the implication behind it. Well, if you can't travel, then why would you continue as Pope? As though the right. Pope the papacy right. is about traveling. Right. Obviously, up until the you know, especially with John Paul II, you didn't have popes traveling a great deal. Right. Um, really, Paul the sixth. Paul the sixth right. was the one was that the first became the sort of yeah. international pope in that that sense. And so my, the like when I was uh, talking about this uh, last week with Drew Mariani, the point I made is, whatever happens, whether Pope Francis retires, whether he doesn't. I think it really behooves us as Catholic to really try to be as clear as we can in our conversations and the way that we even think about the church on what the papacy really is and isn't. What is the purpose of the papacy? Papal trips, I mean, are fine. It's In fact, they can be very great things. You think about some of the historic ones that have taken place, you know, John Paul II going to Poland, et cetera. Uh, but I think that we, I think right now it behooves us to really hone in on a clear idea of what the papacy is and is not. Uh, you know, this idea that the Pope is, in some people's minds, just kind of going along with that idea that's a job. It's like, well, he makes his policy. He implements his right. policy. He has these things that he's going to push through. You know, of course, part of this confusion, I think, for Americans comes from the fact that we now, most people don't seem to have a clear idea about the three branches of government in the United States. And they kind of view the presidency as, as an office where you just make, you can make stuff up and you have all these uh, executive orders and that's the way that you do things. And they see some folks, I think, see the papacy in those same terms, which is unfortunate because that's a very politicized uh, and incorrect view of, you know, the papacy inherently is one of conserving, defending, and if necessary, defining. And, um, so yeah, I think there, there's a lot there. We could have a whole conversation. There's a lot. Yeah, that. there is. Exactly. On, on the one hand, I, I, res, I'm like you, I resist the temptation to understand the papal ministry. We're going to underscore the word ministry, the Petrine office, Petrine ministry of the Pope in political terms, uh, which usually under, or, that's understood to refer to, power and how power is exercised and so on. But on the other hand, there there is politics in the sense that you have people with different views of things in the life and mission of the church, how the church should be arranged, who should be appointed bishops, uh, how bishops should minister in their own dioceses. Uh, and, and in a certain sense, that's political. Uh, and you know, I have to say that I'm not trying to get into uh, an analysis of of the of the current pontificate, but but to some degree, things like the synodal process, not yep. synodality necessarily. The idea of synodality that we're all in this together, as it were, we're on it. We're all part of the pilgrim church, and we're on this pilgrimage to the kingdom of God, the fullness of the kingdom of God. Um beyond history at the end of history and so on you know that's a fundamental when the holy father talks about it being you know, sort of a fundamental 
element of the life of the church. That is, of course, true. We don't always use that word, synodality, but it is, of course, true. Synodal process refers to a human construct. How do we do this thing together? And so when you have different groups, including groups not just on the periphery of the church's life, but at odds with the church in some way, and they're part of the consultative process, part of the conversation. Naturally enough, you're going to see a kind of a power dynamic. Yeah. People in charge, people in leadership having a certain view of the life and mission of the church uh, and the teaching of the church. People, uh, some of the people at large who aren't so exercising leadership um, agreeing with that and saying, let's get on with it. And here are my ideas how to be more effective. But other people saying, no, fundamentally, the church is mistaken about this, mistaken about that. Uh, or the church may be right in her teaching, but she's fundamentally wrong in how she's implemented that teaching and what she's done, so on. There is a dynamic that comes into play that's that's political. So you can understand people looking at the papacy and saying, well, if all these things are going on and there, and there is this direction of the church and how the church articulates permission and how that teaching is presented, uh, you can begin to see why a, a secular reporter, even a church reporter would say, well, I want to know if Francis is going to retire, because what does that mean for a change or different, or even if, even if the reporter is not necessarily ideologically driven, but simply wants something different to report on, you can begin to understand why they would look at it that way. I know I said a lot there, but. Well, I think if we, if we spend as much time focusing on what um, what we actually should be doing as Catholics as we do on anticipating change, we'd be a little bit better right. off speaking in really general terms. Yeah, when I say political, I would I would emphasize uh, I'm kind of talking about the you know the left right conservative liberal right paradigm. Absolutely, I mean, it's absolutely true. Where two or three are gathered, there are political right you know factions. There's, there's <laughs> politics in my two or three gathered in my name. There is politics because you know. As we know, politics, just in general, reflect uh, social the social reality of what it means to be a human. Um, the problem is that I think many people, to be more specific, many people view the papacy in terms of left, right, conservative, liberal, right. and of course those term, terms are kind of fluid as well. But rather than a Catholic approach, which really looks at things in terms of continuity, orthodoxy, uh, those those realities. Um, so it's just, a, it's a, and then, you know, and then we have like, you mentioned that, you know, synodality and we have uh, always since the beginning of this particular pontificate, we've had so many interesting adventures with synodality. In fact, that would be a great, wouldn't that be a great <laughs> book title? Adventures of synodality. synodality right. <laughs> it could be an ongoing series. Um, it, it, it might be uh, both comedic and horrifying. <laughs> it could be like a, it could be like stranger things, a combination of, you know, comedy, thriller, horror. Um. I, I, I say that, but you know, I as as somebody you know was in charge, kind of not really in charge, but worked with the bishop here in the diocese of Santa Rosa for the synodal process. And ours was modest because we're a fairly small rural diocese, and you know, I've been involved with synodal processes in various places in the church. Um, you know, I, I don't want to be too negative because I think it's fundamentally a, an appropriate process. Uh, if you are if you're serious about your Catholic faith and you're prayerful 
and discerning, I think it can be important. If you're not, then those who are serious about their Catholic faith commitment and prayerful and discerning need to be prayerful and discerning about what input you give in the, you know, consultative synodal process. Anyway. Yeah, I just, I think uh, what I, how I would summarize how I view it is, it seems to me, to put it in kind of simple terms, that you have folks who constantly look at the church in terms of what can we change? What can we change? Right. What can we change? And then you have those who look at it like, well, how can I change? What can I, how can I, when I, when I go deeper into the Catholic faith, when I have a deeper encounter with Jesus Christ, when I participate more fully at mass, et cetera, how does it change me? How can I better conform myself right. to Christ? And I think this is a, you know, you go back to the very beginning of the church. This has been the, the one of the dividing lines is, are we trying to conform the church and the faith in our image? Or are we trying to be conformed by the faith itself, which of course ultimately means being conformed by the work of the, the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, et cetera. So we see the same dynamic um, at play today. And of course it's complex because it's not like it's just the good guys, and the bad guys or, or dark and light or whatever. There's a lot of different Assault layers. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of different uh, aspects to it. I was going to mention that in terms of Senate, you know, the, it, there was a, a uh, a poll, I guess a poll, and you probably know a little bit more about this than I do. Uh, Jimmy Aiken had put something out there yeah. on, on Twitter about this poll that the uh, Vatican had put out. And one of the questions, and I really just saw this briefly because I was traveling this past week, uh, visiting family in Montana. And but it was about you know how do you as a young person view the church, and it had some pretty interesting, I guess adjectives, um, you know authoritative. Et cetera, et cetera, whatever. Some positive, some kind of negative. But I mentioned that because um, you know there's a lot of hubbub and debate about that. But at Catholic World Report, we just posted uh, a piece, the first in a series of pieces by Ben Erickson on uh, Generation Z, the millennials. Um, and I think it's going to be a very interesting and very informative uh, series. And I should note that. It came about because you you put me in touch with uh, Ben, who's uh, himself, uh, you know, younger. I think he's 28, if I remember correctly, um, doctoral student at Catholic University of America. Right. But this this piece that he wrote for us is going to be part of about I think it's we, we talked about six or seven pieces where he dives deep into a lot of recent data about Generation Z and how they view the faith how they view reality. Okay. I'm going to stop you because yeah. not everybody is up on the lingo. So what do you okay, mean well, by not generation either. Z? <laughs> what is, what is generation well, he, Z? So he, some people, he, some uh, people are still wondering what generation X is and you're talking about generation Z now. Right. Um, he's talking about those and generation Z and he does the very first paragraph. Actually, he explains that those uh, who are born between 1997 in 2012, are part of Generation Z. So that'd be those who are basically 10 years old uh, to 25 years old um, are part of Generation Z. So yeah, that's a great criteria because uh, there's obviously all the you know Gen X and the Greatest Generation, all this. So we're talking about people who are ages 10 to 25, 
um, preteen, young teen, young adult, or teenagers, young adult. And there's been a lot of interesting studies done. He, he particularly picks, on, picks up on one, the most in-depth study that's been done recently. And as a the first piece that we have up there is um, kind of an introduction, but he also looks at one of the most significant features. One of the things that comes out, a characteristic of those who are millennials or Generation Z people um, is that they are, there's a real sense of detachment, loneliness, isolation. And then it's interesting because right away he identifies some things, you know, people say, well, you, one of the big problems is technology, right? That's the big issue. Well, he points out that that might not be as big of an issue as people might think. It actually might be other deeper factors. Uh, Not that he's just, uh, so so people people that are listening to this now on their phones can just be perfectly (laughs) fine. Everything's wonderful. Don't worry about your phone addiction. Yeah. Well, I think I I really like the fact that, and that's just one of the few points that he makes in this first piece. I think that's important. It's, it's not, he doesn't discount the influence of technology. I mean, none of us, you would be, it would be ridiculous to do that. Uh, The point he makes is that based on a lot of the data we have that to say that, Hey, kids that aren't on phones are doing great and thriving. And then kids who are constantly on phones or on screens or whatever, they're just, they're a complete mess. And they're, you know, it's, uh, and I think, I think it's fair to say some people do look at it that way that, and rather he says, no, they're, they're deeper familial relational issues at work here. In other words, I the way that I interpreted part of what he was saying, I know he's going to get into it further as he goes through the series is that in many ways, the use of screens is more of a symptom than the core problem, right? Or core problems. There's obviously many of them. And we, we all know a lot of the, the usual suspects, which are very, very true family breakup, you know, divorce, um, the fact that a lot of families move a great deal, the kids get shuffled between uh, homes if there's, you know, divorce involved, I mean, et cetera, et cetera. So we know a lot of those. But what I like about this series, I think, is that it it tries to go much deeper. And then the goal of it is really to see how how can the church, how can we as Catholics better engage with those who are ages 10 to 25? How can we better evangelize, catechize, interact, relate? Um, so I think it's easy us, to get. So give us the title of the article. Uh, well, that means I have to go over to that page and, and yeah, look at. Sorry it. about that. I'm, you know, I'm generation. I'm one of my generation. I don't know, like Generation X. Um, this is kind of difficult. So it's titled "Walking with Generation Z: Understanding the Loneliest Generation." So in this very first piece, Ben Erickson uh, begins <laughs> by focusing on that. That's one thing that really jumps out in these various studies is that that sense of isolation that so many young people have, obviously the last, you know, three years uh, did not help at all. In fact, I mean, we know many of the sad stories and situations that have, you know, people that are already struggling, young people are already struggling were then forced into even more difficult situations where they were further isolated. Everything was on the screen, um, distancing, et cetera. So, um, I, I think it's going to be a, a very worthwhile in-depth uh, series that we're doing at Catholic World Report. I agree. Uh, I read the article. I, I thought it, found it very insightful. I, I'm not sure um, at the end of the day um, that uh, church leaders have fully grasped 
you know, what this the impact of this for youth ministry and Catholic schools and evangelizing youth and all of that. So it's important, I think, that that people in leadership positions of the church read the article and, and think carefully about it. So I know this is a big issue and there's a lot of conversation about it. So we need to stay on task, as it were, uh, in this area. I want to ask you about another article. Uh, kind of goes, goes a little bit back to what we were talking about before. We talked about this a little before the program here. Um, and this is the Christian Bruder article. Uh, mm-hmm. Without descending into the details of, um, <laughs> you know, finer part points of magisterial authority and uh, high-end theology, this is an article entitled "Pope Francis Contraception and the Problem of Ecclesial Authority." Now, I'm going to, for a second, bracket out the whole Pope Francis question, partly because I think, you know, Pope Francis obviously continues to teach the Church's teaching on contraception. <laughs> contrary to what you might suppose from what some people say. Now, so just going to bracket that out for a moment. There was discussion about whether or not the teaching on contraception has been infallibly proposed. And whenever you introduce the I word, you know, you get all these kinds of controversies about it. And um, Christian Bruger is a theologian, um, you know, does a good job of explaining the different levels of teaching in the church. And when we say different levels of teaching, we talk about the idea that God has revealed himself, told us about himself, and told us about ourselves in relation to him. So what, how we should think about God, how we should think about ourselves, how we should act in relation to God, how we should act in relation to ourselves and to one another. So we have faith and morals broadly construed. And the church teaches what God has revealed and faith and morals, but teaches at different levels. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I was uh, recently looking back at some um, notes from a course I took in the, you know, the master's in theological studies program that that you taught in (laughs) back when you were, when you were a very young man. When I was was 12, right? You were, you were 12 or 13 years old. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, And I, was very fortunate to have taken moral theology from the great late Dr. Mark Lowry, who was, you know, a phenomenal man and professor. Um, and he makes an interesting point in his notes. This, I think, touches a little bit on this. He, he says that one of the arguments, and he's talking, going back to the issue of Humanae Vitae and through the 70s and 80s, that you had certain theologians who say, well, hey, if this has not been infallibly defined, then it's still an open question. And one of the points that Dr. Lowry makes really strongly is they overlook the fact that there are things that the church has infallibly or, you know, has consistently taught that's part of the ordinary magisterium. This is part of Dr. Brueger's article that it's just consistently there as part of the ordinary magisterium. Now, of course, there's a lot of debate and, and talk about what makes up the ordinary magisterium. But I think in my experience, uh, more than a few Catholics don't really understand. They, they really do think that, hey, if it's not emphatically there in the Bible or if it's not been infallibly proclaimed by a council or uh, a pope, then everything's up for grabs or these things are open for grabs. And what you know, Brueger and Lowry state is no. There are things that have been consistently taught, and of course, they're rooted in uh, scripture and tradition, natural law, etc. That just are consistently taught are part of what we call the ordinary magisterium. 
and to say that, hey, if it's not been defined, then it's still an open question. It's really disingenuous. It's really a form of, you know what it is? It's kind of a form of fundamentalism, right? Yep. It's like, if I don't see it right there in this particular text, then it's an open question. It's like, well, no, it that doesn't necessarily hold. There are a lot of things that are the church has consistently taught, even if it's not infallibly defined them, that we say, yes, that's absolutely uh, the case. And this is really true of a lot of, as you know, of many moral issues, right? It's not right. like the church has this long list of we infallibly define that these various moral acts are wrong. We don't see that. What you, ha- what you have is just the consistent teaching. You obviously have the, the Ten Commandments. You have moral teachings of of scripture, et cetera, but it's all part of a cohesive whole. Um, and a lot of this comes through in what the church or what we call the ordinary magisterium. So I think that's one of the points that Dr. Berger really comes back to as he analyzes some things that are going on. Right. Um, there's a, there was a book that I think it was a pontifical council yeah. for right. life or pontifical the names of all these things are changing, so I can't always remember right. which, keep, one, which ones have changed and what it, what hasn't. But um, there was a book in which one of the uh, contributors it was based it came out of this Congress, the Pontifical Academy of Life for Life, issued a published a book. There was an essay in it, and in that essay, one of the you know the essay that was written by one of the contributors of the Congress raised the question about uh, churches teaching on contraception and uh you know it could it be reevaluated in such a way that it could there could be the possibility of a couple using contraception this is an old old debate you know it's going on for going back to even before the second vatican council but the church has consistently taught no this is not and and part of christian Brueger's argument is that it, it isn't just that it has not been infallibly defined i you you and i Follow this, I think, on Twitter, where there's this argument going back and forth. Well, Humane Vitae, the papal encyclical in 1968, Pope Paul VI issued in response to the controversy about birth control. The church has always opposed um, contraception. The contraceptive pill invented in the late 1950s uh, raised the question, well, does this apply to the the contraceptive pill? There was some study and, 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 and debate about this. But at the end of the day, the Pope looked at it and said the church's teaching on contraception applies to the pill as well. And therefore, you know, it can't morally be used. It's contrary to the purpose of sexual intercourse and the spousal meaning of sexual intercourse and so on. Okay, so there is this controversy online about the fact that uh, the Vatican spokesman, when the encyclical was released, Back in 1968, said was asked a question about it, and he said that the encyclical itself did not amount to an infallible definition. And as you know, Carl, there's, the discussion that followed from that was not whether or not the encyclical itself was a papal definition of morals, but right. whether the teaching that was in that document had has been proposed or when we say proposed we mean taught as true um yep. it's not like well here's a proposal I mean, taught as true the teaching in that encyclical against contraception has it been taught as true 
definitively by the ordinary magisterium. So uh, a definition of dogma by the Pope or definition of a uh, matter of faith, pertaining faith and morals by the Pope or a church ecumenical council is what we call the extraordinary magisterium. But the teaching of bishops dispersed throughout the world, when they teach the teaching of Christ in their ordinary ministry, we call that the ordinary magisterium. So what Christian Brueger is trying to stress is that just because something has not been infallibly defined in the extraordinary magisterium doesn't mean it hasn't been taught infallibly or irreformably. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to change by the ordinary magisterium. And so there are various conditions for that. But what is amazing to me, and I kind of go on and on about this, but what's amazing to me is there is all kinds of discussion about this topic for the last 40, 50 years. And I've referred to uh, John C. Ford, Germain Grise's article, Contraception, the Ordinary Magisterium in the Church, which Ignatius Press, by the way, published in a book back in, I think, the late 1980s called The Teaching of Humanae Vitae. And, and there are any number of theologians today who would hold that that teaching is infallibly taught from the ordinary magisterium. But it's amazing to me today that this is now uh, being experienced by so many people as a novel idea, or they'd never heard of this before. Yeah. You know, people yeah, no, are I, supposedly following things in the church. I made the, I made the joke recently that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 53 years old and I, I'm just, um, I sarcastically noted how grateful I am that now I get to live through the 1970s. Um, <laughs> Yes, and I, I this is, you know, for example, you mentioned Ignatius Press and all this. So here's a book. Yes, great historian, Dr. James Hitchcock, who taught for many years at St. Louis University. This book was published by Ignatius Press in 1983 or 1984, called Years of Crisis, 1985, and he covers it's collected essays from 1970-1983, and it's interesting reading that because, of course, he talks at length about these different issues, these various very same controversies. Over moral theology, humanae vitae, contraception. He has stuff in there about abortion. And I'm as I've been going through and reading sections of it, I'm thinking, hey, Ignatius Press should just republish this. But instead yeah, of saying collected good. essays 1970-1983, put collected essays, you know, 2000 right. whatever to 2022. Uh, it's it, and it really is remarkable. Now, of course, there are differences. Um, and there and, and now, of course, we have the the context of where things have really advanced because all these things are connected, of course, where we have the transgender issue and we have right. sure. the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I, it is remarkable. And I think that's something though, it's an important, important point for people to keep in mind that these debates have been going on and in a real sense have been settled. It's not that we can't discuss them or whatever, but it's, no. it's, and of course, now, you know, I talked about people who want change, change, change. Well, they use the term development and they, they say, well, this is about uh, teaching, developing. It's like, well, as John Paul II made very clear in Veritatis Splendor, there are certain moral acts that are objectively sinful and evil. No matter the culpability of those committing them, right. they are objectively wrong every time. Contraception is one of those abortion is one of those adultery how you know right. et cetera, and, and, et cetera. And, and as you're right as you say mindful of culpability but the that just means how blameworthy am yeah. i for having yeah. done something that's wrong 
that's what that means. It doesn't mean that it, what what was what is wrong suddenly isn't wrong simply because I'm not blameworthy for it. Uh, and so that's really the issue: is it wrong in itself? Not you know, obviously it's for confession. We can ask the question. The priest's going to say, you know, how culpable is this person for doing this? But whether it's presented as wrong or not is not. It's not relevant to ask whether the person yeah. who did this thing is culpable. I know we have to wrap up here in a bit, Mark, but I wanted to quickly point out, and I was reminded of this by our, by uh, Kate Harmon, who's handling our video, that um, millennials are not exactly the same thing as uh, Gen Z. And I appreciate that that correction. That's that's a good point. Uh, millennials, I think, more generally are those who have reached adulthood in the early 21st century, right? So you could be older than 25 and be considered a millennial, if I understand that correctly. I'm not, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. I think I am. And I don't even know what that what that means. Um, I'm a baby just, boomer. Uh, <laughs> I'm a tail, tail in baby boomer. So. Um, <laughs> We've no, I do. I, you know, I, obviously, I'm joking a little bit. I do. I do. You know, understand. So, and I think those breakdowns are. Um, they can be helpful. Obviously, you can look at generations, um, and you can see patterns and so forth. And that's important to study that. Just you know, like this series that CWR is going to. Um, but I think too, we have to look at the, the the flow. Also, I mean, you know, we we are such products in many ways of those generations that have gone before us and of the cultural kind of streams that have come down. So making sense of a lot of these things, it's obviously, um, you know, very, very involved. Well, increasingly aging guys here, uh, of course, when we stop aging, we're dead. Uh, talking about this is, is interesting and you're 10 years younger than I am, but um, the generation disconnect, anytime about Gen Z and Gen X and, millennials and baby boomers and all of that the generational disconnect is inf is interesting and important to talk about obviously with respect to the, what ben erickson is calling the loneliest generation so far um that's important issues around that and reaching that generation helping those young people come to know the purpose of life which is to know jesus christ and enter to enter into the fullness of life through that saving union with him okay that's what we want to do we want to help them but even within the church and people who are are catholics or christians and they know christ this phenomenon of uh needing to rediscover the past uh is is a fascinating thing i'm becoming more and more mindful of it as i get older and i see younger people come on the scene it seemed to me that for a while there was excitement about young people on their own discovering or rediscovering things. And that was great, but we seem to have entered into a period now, and I don't know if it's something to do with the Francis pontificate or I don't know what it is, but we seem to have entered a period now where what's being discovered are the mistakes of the 1960s and 1970s. <laughs> and they're being treated as if nothing that preceded or certainly nothing that followed that address those mistakes has happened. And that's right. a real challenge. That's going to be a real challenge for us because we're going to be tending to dismiss and say, we've seen, been there, done that already. And that's not an adequate answer. I acknowledge that in dealing right. with these young, um, younger people, but uh, we, we nevertheless are going to have to, to help them see that they're not the first people to discover these things. 
And there have been many people who have already responded and worked through these issues. Yeah. Uh, so well, I would, anyway, I, I I would leave you with that. <laughs> well, I just quickly, to, as we conclude, I would just say on top of that, one of the reasons I became Catholic 25 years ago was that I began to discover that one, I wasn't nearly as smart as I thought I was. In fact, I was pretty objectively ignorant, <laughs> not stupid, but ignorant, very ignorant. And as I began to read across the, you know, the tradition, St. Augustine, uh, Aquinas, Newman, Chesterton, you know, I began to say, hey, wait a second. These, these guys have, and women, have addressed these issues, and they have come up with far deeper, more profound insights than I have. Um, and I think, I really do think there's a, an issue of humility involved here. Are we going to, are we going to approach history and reality with humility and recognize, you know, yeah, all those people had flaws. Of course we have flaws too, though. And I think there's a, a real chronological snobbery, but also more to what you're saying. Things are kind of being taken out of context and there's no sense of this flow, the relationship of different ideas and movements and people and, and so forth together. And I think that is, things are so fragmented and whether that's a technological issue, I know obviously part of it has to do with, with technology and social media. Absolutely. But I think too, it's just the people, uh, there's a real struggle there. So I think that catechetically from, a, we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of work to do. We always do. It's always been that way, but I think that's one of the challenges. I think you've, you've put your finger on a big, big challenge that we're going to be facing, uh, right now and for years to come. Carl Olson, editor of Catholic World Report. Thanks for the conversation and keep up the good work. Thanks, Mark. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.